This is the MagicWordPodcast.com. Hello, this is Scott Wells for the MagicWordPodcast.com. I would like to have a little bit of feedback from you guys and gals because I tried a different program this last week uh, whenever I was at the Magic Collectors Expo. I was using a new program that kind of filters out some of the background noise, thus dampening all of the background and ambient noise. Uh, so it really focuses in more on the recordings I'm making between two people when I'm talking with somebody else. And you might hear a little bit of a hum in the background, but I'm wondering if perhaps that might be too much. In other words, I want everyone when I go to magic conventions to feel as if that they are in the middle of that, that they are actually in the dealer's room or they're in the lecture hall or wherever else. And by dampening that background noise and thus highlighting and accentuating the voices of the people I'm talking to, uh, it, it I don't know if you still get the same feeling uh, that as if you were there. So my question to you, and I'd like to have some feedback, uh, you can uh, send me an email or use SpeakPipe. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, I'd like to get some feedback from you, the listeners, to let me know if you like this new program I'm using that dampens that background noise and also eliminates some of the echo whenever I'm in a larger room uh, or a hall or a museum or a lecture hall or something like that, or if I should go back to the way that I was doing it before and just uh, letting the background noise kind of let you hear all of that so you feel like you're there. Or perhaps if you might want a hybrid of that. I was just talking with my friend Jamie Salinas, and he suggested perhaps that I might just have a little bit of uh, noise on the front end of this and then perhaps mute the background for the balance of the conversation. So this way that you feel like actually you were there, but then you're focusing in on this conversation. Anyhow, I would like to have your feedback. You can let me know just through a direct message on Facebook if you're following me on the Magic Word Podcast, or you can send me an email to scott at themagicwordpodcast.com, or perhaps if it's easier for you, and I think it would be kind of cool, is just to send me a voice message using SpeakPipe, which is the program that's actually on the website. So if you go to themagicwordpodcast.com, you'll see there a link that says SpeakPipe, and you can leave a uh, short message giving your opinion. So I would like to have those opinions to let me know if I should continue to use this program or not, or in how much of that should be enhanced or not. So anyhow, it's something I'm trying to do, again, in response to you, the listener, to give you a better listening experience. So uh, enough of that. Let's move on then to this week's episode. I was performing at the Magic Castle on March the 13th through the 19th of uh, 2023, and there were several people I was working with uh, that week, obviously. I was working in the parlor along with Ron Saylor, and working over in the palace that week happened to be Dale Salwick uh, along with uh, David Kovac and the Evisons. So I sat down with some of the people... uh, while I was out there and uh, recorded a uh, more at length episode, which one of which you're going to be hearing here this week, and that's the one that I recorded with Dale Sawick. Uh, Dale, some of you know as perhaps being the, I call him the gentleman of magic, but actually he explains where he got that moniker, and uh, I think it was interesting, and I did not know the background of this, so it's interesting as he talks about that at the early part of this podcast. But moreover, he is a professor at Citrus College and also produces uh, magic shows that uh, tour throughout the western seaboard out throughout California, as well as he has, uh, of course, best known as the... uh one of the teachers for the Chavez uh, Studio of Magic. Uh, Chavez is a has been around since the end of World War II. Uh, basically, he talks a little bit about that and talks about uh, Ben and Marion Chavez and uh, about his relationship with them and also with Neil Foster. And it's just a fascinating history. And I know there are several people who are listening to this who are also graduates of the Chavez School of Magic and perhaps may have studied directly either under Chavez, Marion, or Ben, or perhaps under um, Neil Foster or maybe perhaps under uh, Dale Sowick. So he's going to give us uh, uh, just a delightful tour of his life and a little bit of a talk uh, about that Shava school, as well as a host of other things. It's a delight to catch up with my old friend that uh, we've known each other, golly, since the 80s, I guess. So uh, let me just kind of step out of the way and introduce you to this week's guest. Please welcome my guest, Mr. Dale Sowick, here on The Magic Word.
Today we are in the Magic Castle, actually. We're sitting here in the parlor where occasionally they have done some different interviews for video with different people over the years. And one of the people who is involved with the Magic Castle and has been for a long time, as well as a lot of other performances up and down the West Coast, and perhaps most of you know him most well-known for his Chavez School of Magic and having uh, learned, I believe, from original Chavez, yeah, from Marion. From Marion, Chavez, yes. that's right. This is Dale Sowick, and we go back uh, so very long ago. Mm-hmm. I remember when we worked at the Magic Island in Houston, mm-hmm. and I had written an article for the MUM magazine, mm-hmm. and I had Dale to write an interesting article, and I remember mm-hmm. the particular story you told, and we'll get to that uh, if you remember it. If not, I'll refresh your memory, <laughs> but let's just get into it. Sure. Uh, so uh, it's such a joy to talk with uh, someone who is a modern-day legend of our magic community, Mr. Dale Sowick. Hey there, Dale. I appreciate that, Scott. <laughs> it's overstated, but I appreciate it. It's Not at all. I believe I'm understating it. There are so many more <laughs> things that I could say and accolades that I could give you. It's uh, fantastic. I'm glad we have an opportunity to uh, sit and chat here for a while because I, I, I do remember going back when we were uh, in Houston. Now, you came through Houston occasionally. I on, did. On, Every summer, Scott Hollingsworth would bring me in. I owe Scott a lot. Uh, As many not do. the least being yeah. that he gave me my brand, which is the Gentleman of Magic. Um, mm-hmm. The first week working there, the first night, uh, Scott didn't hadn't announced this in advance. He introduced me and said, please welcome the Gentleman of Magic, Dale Sawak, and I've used it ever since. I like so, that. So uh, branding is important, of course, something that the audience um, can, can understand in a sentence or less when you're promoting your magic or whatever product you're promoting. So I owe that to Scott. Um, we had marvelous summers. I'd go in for a month at a time, put us up in a condo, and just lots of laugh and lots of good times. And and um, Scott was the ideal host. He was, you know, and the roving magician as well, and the MC. Mm-hmm. He had wore a lot of hats. He certainly did, and he did bring in everybody. And at the time, I wouldn't say that they were top talent, but they were people who later did become top talent. That's there were right. some people like Chip Romero who got started there, John Chirac. I mean, we can go on and on with so many people who are who owe their careers mm-hmm. getting started at the Magic Island uh, there with uh, yeah, Scott. Yeah, we all need places to develop. Correct. And uh, there are few and far between, although there are more than there were 30 years ago. And, of mm-hmm. course, we're here at the Castle, which is a mecca for magicians, a place where we can learn our craft in front of real audiences and do three shows a night for seven nights. Right. There's nothing like that for really learning your chops. It's hard to get in here, though. Uh, what, what, I, I, I was lucky, and I could tell the story later if necessary, but about how that, what my path was. I first yeah. started in 1981 in performing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, if somebody wanted to work the Magic Castle, what sure. process do they have to go through today? Very direct. Uh, Jack Goldfinger is the current entertainment director, and he likes to receive videos or DVDs uh, of the actual product, the act that the person proposes to bring to the mm-hmm. castle, Jack books about three months in advance. So that's important to keep in mind that you don't call or contact him and then expect to come in the next week. <laughs> but as in any business, getting to know uh, Jack in this case, making yourself known to him and your work, and then it goes from there. Right. You have a good point there, and that is to make sure you send the full act because he's not wanting to see like a uh, snippets or a highlight no. film. He no, needs to say, right. what are you doing, you know, trick after trick? He, what are he your doesn't lines? want to be surprised. <laughs> no surprises here <laughs> from that standpoint. From the surprises standpoint. are for the audience. Yes, of course. <laughs> exactly. Well, the Magic Island really was a, a great time and a point in history and for 25 years until 2008 during the hurricane mm. that closed the place. And there have been a couple of starts and stops that have uh, tried to get it going. And I thought for a while it, it was. Even mm. the Dr. Atari had put some more money back into it. He hired me as entertainment director. I started yes. talking with some people, and then they shut it back down because they didn't get the permits to uh, to reopen it. And so uh, we decided it was going to cost too much, I guess, to get the permits. And uh, Anyhow, it's, uh, it's a non-starter then again. I don't uh, think it's going to be open under the current management uh, until he passes and passes it on to his kids or sure. somebody buys it or whatever, uh, which is, is kind of sad. But going back, who were some of the people that you remember working mm-hmm. with, not just necessarily at the Magic Island, but also mm-hmm. then at the, uh, at the castle or maybe yeah. other places? Well, that, that's the wonder of it all. It's really a who's who of magic. Mm-hmm. If you name someone, I'll pr- I probably have worked work with, them, with them, either at a convention <laughs> or at a club, at Magic Island, Newport Beach or Magic Island, Houston, right. and certainly the Magic Castle. We had uh, Wizards for eight years at Universal City as well. Right. Um, so I've really had the privilege and the great fun of getting to know people from all angles of the industry and have an opportunity to work with them. 
I, I mentioned the story earlier because, and I'd forgotten what year it was that we had the MUM article that I had uh, written, that feature article, and that was the last black and white cover they had because oh, yes. it was the very next month that they mm-hmm. started with their, their color photos for the cover. But I had uh, solicited uh, stories from you and several others who had been there. Do you remember the story that you had sent me? Well, is it the one about the silk going up into the was exactly the air it. Isn't that something? <laughs> you have a wonderful memory there. That was it. Yeah, no, Dale, just, exactly. Did you want me to tell that? I do want you to tell that. <laughs> uh, this was my first week at Magic Island Houston, and nobody had forewarned me that above the <laughs> stage and it was a low-hanging stage, uh, there was an air conditioning duct. So the opening of my act, which I owe to Neil Foster, by the way, he, just a side note here, he visited me in California in 78 and said, you need a new opening. And he gave me a little box, and that was what, what I've been using ever since, which is the appearing, vanishing, and appearing cane. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I come out, and I um, d- spread a silk handkerchief over my left hand, then drape it over my right, and the silk handkerchief goes up in the air, and then I've got the cane. Mm-hmm. Well, not knowing that that duct was up there, it sucked up right into the air-conditioned <laughs> duct. So I, I played that for all it's worth, the vanishing handkerchief. Yeah. Uh, it's not an effect I can repeat. It's too expensive to bring all the equipment along. But <laughs> that, was, that was absolutely it. I, I played that with a smile as if it was part of the act. Yeah. And afterwards, Scott said, how did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, I, I owe it to you, Scott. There are so many things, situations <clears throat> like that, in which we have to just keep on and persevere through there. And then later think, man, well, how can I replicate that to turn that into gold? Another example, at the Magic Island, you might recall that <clears throat> center stage, backstage, was, uh, there was a bathroom. There's between the two dressing rooms. And Fielding West had played that. So whenever they opened the curtains, he was just walking out of the bathroom door. Mm-hmm. And you could hear the, ba- the, the, the toilet flushing as he mm-hmm. would have a newspaper and say, oh, we're ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can see Fielding doing that yeah. and playing that up. <laughs> it was perfect. As far as different people and places that you played, I do want to go back to something. I don't know whether you still do this or not, Dale, but you also had uh, worked with the, um, oh, what was that tour up and down the uh, West Coast that um, – uh, you had other magicians. Who oh, Stars of Magic. Stars of Magic. Yes, we still we haven't done that in the last few years. Called International Stars of Magic. Okay. Began in 1975. Wow. At Citrus College, and then we started to branch out to co- uh, theaters on the West Coast and also on the East Coast, and then we even took it into Toronto. Uh, Canada, mm-hmm. one particular January. <laughs> wow. That must be a story. It was, it was a story all in itself. It sounds yes. like a lot of snow and ice we and on a bus. We had two vans or, and yeah. a car, and I don't, I don't know how we made it to each site, but we did. <laughs> but yes, that was a, a full production of five or six acts that I'd bring in, international. And in fact, I'm starting to look into the possibilities of revisiting that. It's been mm-hmm. a few years of been away from that. Well, the only one that's touring right now I can think of is similar to that might be the Masters of Illusion that gave Masters of Illusion, and then, so. of course, Milt Larson's uh, It's Magic, which still oh, plays oh, that's in, playing still. in okay. a variety of uh, theaters on the West Coast. I just yes. thought still that was just a one-off kind of a thing. No, they? no, it, it's continuing. In fact, okay. they were over at McCallum in Palm Springs not long ago, and then they, they play a number of other Southern California, Northern California sites as well. Mm-hmm. And when they tour, how many magicians are on that typically? Five or six. Okay. So it makes a full show. The ideal is if you have a two-hour show, then you have a 15-minute intermission, or you go an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes with no intermission. And mm-hmm. that's five or six acts. And do you play in colleges, theaters? or College, performing arts centers. Um, I don't four-wall, mm-hmm. which means buying the place, but rather I work the show into their performing arts series. I see. So the the value of that, first, I'm not at financial risk, but secondly, we're guaranteed at least half a house just from their sure from their um, mailing program. List. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mailing list. And then we work to fill it. And really, the only anxiety connected with that is filling the seats. I'm not worried about the performers. Yeah. I know they're going to deliver. Uh-huh. But every time, it's you're in competition with so much else. Other live shows and exactly. everything else that did. Right. It takes a good deal of effort to bring the people out. It's funny that uh, this is not going live, although it would seem like it, because I don't know if you heard my phone ringing in the background. Mm. That was Fielding West just calling me. <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> he must have psychically heard us talking about him or something over there. Uh, so is it just magicians? Do you have jugglers as well? Sometimes and, uh, variety acts, and, yes, indeed. Uh, I've had a number of um, ventriloquists, also jugglers, but mm-hmm. primarily it's magic-themed. There are not a lot of events out there. No, no. There's Ron Saddleman. Um, there's um, Mark Merchant. Mark, yes, yes. Uh-huh. Um, but you're right. There's a half dozen or so that are active that mm-hmm. can pull from. The Mike Robinson, I think, uh, does some cruise ships. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, not a lot that are out there. There are going to be more and more jugglers, however, I That's guess. That's right, so. sure, especially through Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, really? The, yeah, the, after all, as you know, in Asia, the tradition of uh, the circus and variety arts out of which magic came. And so you have not only gymnasts, but you have jugglers and dancers and all kinds of incredible variety acts that take extraordinary skill and timing mm-hmm. to um, to present successfully. And so I like to pull from those groups as well when possible. Speaking of which, it seems to me mm-hmm. right now that uh, the Asian Pacific Rim is where most mm-hmm. of the fantastic card manipulation yes. is coming from uh, to the point where it's almost discouraging Americans from entering some contests like mm-hmm. we can't compete with that they, mm-hmm. they we don't have the dedication or what I don't know why some mm-hmm. do but I was just uh, talking with Artem Shukin mm-hmm. uh, who of course is a FISM winner sure. and he had spent some time in South Korea and then he got kind of stuck there just before uh, COVID and couldn't come back into Russia and, and or anywhere for that matter so he spent even more time mm-hmm. developing his act and just learning manipulation over there but those guys and gals uh, have do just some tremendous this uh, manipulation. They yeah, sure do. Very in- innovative as well. We had um, just a few weeks ago a full week of Chinese magic here at the castle. Oh, really? That Jin Ling Hu and I had been talking about since 2018 brought in 14 mm-hmm. Chinese magicians. Innovative, skillful, including two 12-year-old girls really? who were marvelous. Mm-hmm. Uh, one with billiard balls and silks and flowers and another with live goldfish. Uh, well, five wait, you manipulate spots. goldfish? Well, <laughs> yes, matter of matter speaking, not with the right, hands, but right. with the net and catching Correct. in the air and showing a box empty and producing. And Some, it was mm-hmm. very strong, very wow. well. But you're absolutely right about the the entire North and Southeast Asian um, community of magicians. What they have going for themselves is number one is the extraordinary discipline and the sustained focus, mm-hmm. and secondly that their magic is an expression of their culture, a promotion of their culture, a promotion of their country, and they have the government behind them. That's a good point. In mainland China, for example, how nice it would be if we had that kind of uh, support. Uh, support here, mm-hmm. financial support. Uh, many of the universities in China have magic clubs. Uh, there was for many years in Busan, South Korea, as you know, Yuji Asuda uh, ran a school for magic as mm-hmm. part of the regular academic curriculum. So they go for college for four years, and two of those years are the intensive study of magic. An Halim, for example, came out of that program hmm. out of South Korea. Um, and and it's, been, it's a stated policy. We want to be number one, that is, from an Asian point of view. Right. And they support one another. Uh, in well, their development. Same thing, like, I guess, with their other types <clears throat> of performing arts, whether it's ballet or, yes. or symphony or whatever, exactly. that they, they, they equate magic on the same level with that's other right. performing exactly. arts, basically. So that's a very good point, that magic is a high art from mm-hmm. their perspective on the same level as opera, classical piano, mm-hmm. dance. Right. Uh, when, again, talking with Artem uh, Shukin, mm-hmm. that he was saying uh, when he talks with some people there in Russia, and they say, what do you do? And he said, I'm a magician. Mm-hmm. And they say, no, what do you really do? And because mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of interesting that he's getting that kind of uh, pushback because there in Russia, it's mm-hmm. not as – because I thought, well, it would be the same thing, I guess, similar to uh, Asia in which mm-hmm. they would be promoting that and having people like they, they come to the Bolshoi that they promote people to be uh, dancers and everything mm-hmm. then as well. And he said, not necessarily. It's kind of like, well, what do you do to contribute to to communism, the money kind of goes to everybody, and you're not making enough money. Now, most of the magicians, I understand, in Russia, though, are more theatrical. They're mm-hmm. circus performers and illusionists, That's so right. very few, if any, uh, yes. close-up guys. Yes, exactly so, mostly. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah, the uh, development of magic has um, really um, skyrocketed over the last 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. I've, I've been throughout mainland China and Japan and Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, Taiwan, Thailand, all those play. I'm amazed yeah. at the talent. And the audiences love you, too. The they respect that. Exactly so. They do, indeed. Great respect. Right. And they recognize the skill level also, but also the artistry. Uh, with a silent act, there is, are no barriers. You can perform anywhere. When I was talking with Mike Miller, he has done several tours, yes, I guess, with, with people over there. And when I was talking to Rocco and some of the others, they're rock stars over there. Oh, yes. Very much so. Yes, indeed. The, there's a large group at the airport that greets you with wow. big signs. Uh-huh. When you arrive at the theater, they're lined up on both sides clapping. Uh, <laughs> you're absolutely right about that. And it's, it's an advantage to come as a foreigner. Oh, also, really? Okay. one mm-hmm. step up. Just as when we have um, international artists come here, right. it's, it, it's the, the uniqueness, the unusual quality, mm-hmm. the unexpected 
that um, it seems, Dale, now that we are have are in an internet age uh, that and have been for a long time. Uh, the point is, it used to be that it'd be more unique because they. They studied by themselves, and we studied by ourselves, and it was quite unique we would see somebody else because we didn't have the ability to share the way that we do now. It seems like now if, if, a, if a pin drops in L.A., you hear it about it in London, you know, at the Magic Cat Circle or something. So uh, every, everything is shared here, uh, and you can download uh, whatever to, to learn tricks a lot easier than what we did before. It, that's why I think it's even more impressive that the Asians still are able to do something that's unique that is not something that is the time that most Americans and other North Americans put in the time and effort to do that. Maybe, again, because we don't get the same respect that they do it elsewhere. You yeah, know? And, and and their system, they learn from the ground up. Mm, uh, one of the um, <clears throat> disadvantages of having so much of the finished product on YouTube, for example, is that young up-and-coming magicians see the finished product, but they don't see the 20 years that went into getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they will some will try to mimic what they see on the screen, but they haven't gone through all the growing and developing years leading up to it. That's true. Very different with Asia. They start at the bottom. They learn the technique. They learn the strategies for performing, and it's step by step process, just right. like in gymnastics or in music. Right. You see a concert pianist. You then don't sit down and play Rachmaninoff's Fifth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But some some magicians might have the attitude of there's the finished product. Now I'll duplicate that, but haven't gone through the journey. And there's so, there's so much to that because it's not just, say, doing a double lift, but it's also the choreography, the blocking, the, the dance, mm-hmm. the movement or non-movement of standing and taking the middle of the stage and you know, looking at the audience instead of your hands or, or if you're talking, what it is that you're doing. I mean, it's much, it's much more holistic, I guess. There's a lot more involved yeah. to it. Yeah, what you're speaking of being one with your material. Yes. And that doesn't happen overnight. That's through lots and lots of years, trial and error, as you know, mm-hmm. with your own work. It, first of all, you didn't learn it overnight. And secondly, it took a long long time to get to the point where you and the material are one. Right. And the material is an expression of you. And it should come across that way so the audience right. realizes that you're not just relaxed. putting on an act and you're, they just didn't come to see a mousetrap, you know, That's a play right. or something. You know? <laughs> exactly so. Exactly. This is a lifetime mm-hmm. investment that you've put into your magic. Mm-hmm. And the, audience can, the astute audiences can sense that immediately. Right. And again, like you said, it's from the ground up. Speaking from the ground up, then you talk about Marion Chavez because obviously you were a Chavez student and later a teacher. Yeah. Uh, I, I would like to kind of explore that a little bit more about the the genesis, I guess, of sure. Marion and, and uh, what was her husband's name? Benny. And Benny, who, who started the, the course, when it was, et cetera, yes. just some of the history of that. Well, yes, Benny uh, came from Manila, is Filipino, and I uh, moved to America in 1940. He was a young man, and there he met Marlis, um, Marion Cleary, who um, th- they got married, began to develop a vaudeville act, and worked all through the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, it had dawned on uh, both of them in the late 30s, early 40s, that there wasn't a formal system of training to be a magician. You could go to a dance school, you could go to dramatic school, you could go to a music conservatory, mm-hmm. but there was no formal training for magicians. And so in 1941, in the spring, they opened it up, uh, the Chavez Studio of Magic, out of their garage. And they had three or four students that they attracted. Was that in Colon? That was, no, that was in California. California, okay. Yeah, north of, of uh, Panorama City. They started out in Los Angeles, then they moved to Panorama City. Is that a suburb? <laughs> suburb okay. of Los Angeles. And that was the start. Uh, it, it, uh, through fortuitous circumstances, they were able to be recognized by the California Department of Education, and they were placed under the GI Bill. And so a lot of returning veterans mm. mm-hmm. went through Chavez, not necessarily because they wanted to become professional magicians, also some did, but mm-hmm. some just for the therapy, the physical or oh. the uh, psychological therapy as well. And that's, that blossomed. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of cut on, and one thing led to another, and in its heyday. Well, must, just halt yes, there for a minute. Sorry. That must have been fairly mm-hmm. difficult, I would think, for the Chavez's to get the government to yes. recognize them as a qualified school, qualified where school. money could go. Yes. To have the, yes. Do you know anything about how they? I don't know a lot of it. Wow. I just, it was a long process. It must have been. They had the product in their own work. Number one. Yeah. Uh, they had the curriculum written out in great detail, and mm-hmm. the uh, the timing was just right. There okay. was nothing like this, right. and the need was uh, recognized was by the state yeah. government. And the VA. Yeah. By the yeah. VA. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So at, at their um, most um, 
active phase. They had up to 70 students at a time with two studios, one on Figueroa and the other on Sunset Boulevard. Mm -hmm. In fact, you have ever seen the movie Sunset Boulevard? I have. There is a scene of a car coming down Sunset Boulevard, and there's the Chavez studio. Mike Caveney <laughs> sent me that excerpt from the movie, and, it, and he wrote in the note, those were the days. And then right across the street was Abbott's. Mm-hmm. Mar- marvelous time. Yeah. There's yeah. the Chavez, and there's um, Abbott's. So um, Benny died in <clears throat> 1960. Marion continued on, and that, during that time she was developing a home study course. Mm-hmm. They, she and Benny took well over 4,000 photos, wrote the text, and eventually developed 17 lessons with photos, and that's where I got involved. Hmm. It was 1963. I was at a two-day magic convention in Lafayette Park in Indiana, and on the bill were Dorney Dornfield and so many others and Neil Foster. Mm-hmm. I knew Neil by reputation through the new tops, but we had not had met yet. Well, when you I saw corresponded, him, I assume we then? corresponded. Okay. Yeah, <clears throat> I have all those letters. And um, when I saw him perform, I knew instantly that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. That is, I don't didn't want to be Neil, but I want to do that kind of work. Sure. And uh, so I, when I learned that he had gone through Chavez. And one of my oldest friends in magic, Steve Kelly, who was joining me for the convention, he and I had the same age, and he was taking the home study. Well, that was all I needed. So I got started. It was, uh, I was in high school at the time, and we did, um, what was it, 17 lessons, one a month. Mm-hmm. And I learned with it and um, started to apply it in my shows, and then met Marion for the first time in 1967. And we clicked. She liked my work, and little did I know that she was thinking in the future of where, where this would end up. But in a nutshell, that's how all that developed. Well, at the time or around mm-hmm. then, didn't Tarbell have his course also, he which did was indeed. a mail? Yes, that was a mail order, and then it was published in hard volumes. Uh-huh. Exactly so. Different. The big difference is that with Chavez, it was a carefully defined curriculum where each lesson prepared for the next lesson mm-hmm. and the goal was to develop complete audience tested routines mm-hmm. and eventually help you develop your own act whereas in Tarbell as you know it was a series many hundreds of effects but Correct. not necessarily all, unrelated. all not necessarily related that's right mm-hmm. uh, well the first mm-hmm. volume about half of it it was just kind of a theory and marketing that's and understanding right. the basics of magic yeah. it seems like and uh, i think that's a very important foundation that a lot of magicians overlook. It's show business, isn't it? (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) Most people are just trying to jump forward to the tricks and Mm. forget that first half, which is very important uh, for a new magician, I think. Now, again, times have changed, but to a degree, I still think that uh, reading is an important way of learning. Of course. Of course it is. Yes, indeed. What are some of the books you recommend, then? Well, uh, Greater Magic, Mm -hmm. uh, the John Booth classic series, um, I grew up on that. I grew up with um, uh, Routine Manipulation, the three volumes. Sure. Um, I grew up with um, um, a lot of uh, close-up card work, which I never became my specialty, but I was fascinated with it as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Chavez course, of course, changed uh, my life in dramatic ways. Uh, the Encyclopedia of Cigarette Magic, the Encyclopedia of Ball Magic, um, compilations of uh, whole history of Bobo's Coin mm-hmm. Magic. Abbott's Rope one. Magic. Abbott's yeah. Rope Magic, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to uh, steep myself and educate myself. So I might learn, for example, 20 ways to vanish the silk. I only use one. Right. But I have t- I learned 20 in order to pick the one that was best for me. That is some great advice there, Dale, because mm-hmm. a lot of times you never know what's going to happen, just like the silk can go up the, <laughs> the duck, you That's know. Exactly How right. do you get yeah. out of certain things? And sure. it's not just for close-up magicians. It's not just for stage magicians because there is some overlap that you have to have a little bit of skill of both to, to play in whatever arena because mm-hmm. there, that you're, you're performing in because uh, you may need, for an example, on stage to uh, hide something in your hand. So you need to learn a little bit of sleight of hand to protect it from the audience, even That's though right. that there's an audience that's 30 feet away away from you. There's a parallel with that in jazz uh, pianist. Oh, what's that? Jazz, well, jazz pianist would be able to play a number in all, all keys mm-hmm. and all kinds of variations. So then when the time comes to sit down and play, whatever, however you're moved at that time, mm-hmm. a magic uh, degree, you want to have alternatives. You want to have options. Um, you want to keep stretching and testing yourself. So I might do different kinds of productions, one show, mm-hmm. just to keep stretching myself. By the way, getting back to books, the first book I had was, was Ripley's Magic for Boys. 
Okay. Um, my dad had a copy of that, and after I was, saw my first magician when I was five, I was very excited. You remember and, who it was? Yes. It was, his last name was White. I don't know the first name. Okay. It was a birthday party. Birthday party. Okay. Everybody else ran to the punch and cookies, and I was just tagging <laughs> along with the magician. Uh-huh. He gave me the, uh, a, a nickel-to-dime trick. Wow. That was my first mm-hmm. trick. <clears throat> and the, my dad had a copy of Magic for Boys. The wonder about that book is it really doesn't tell you how to perform the effects. What it does is describe the effects. So then you have mm. to use your own imagination to figure things out. So my mom and I would sit at the breakfast table and work out and make these things. Really? And you mean like I, in cardboard and Yeah, paper cardboard or? and tape and mm. Velcro. Well, we didn't have Velcro then. And when mm. I was 10, I did my first show. No mm-hmm. sense of routining, no sense of showmanship. It was one effect or another. But mm-hmm. I did Magician's Choice with blown eggs, for example, to right. get one with confetti. One has confetti. I made my own egg bag. I made some rice bowls following the... I uh, made a little zombie tube out of cardboard, those sorts of things. Right. Is well, it called zombie tube? What's that silver tube? And it's a phantom tube? A phantom tube. Right. Phantom tube, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that... Is pretty amazing. Uh, did you uh, then? That's when you started making things. Do you, yeah. I assume you still sew You're a little bit? You do a little bit of a oh sure, do, okay. sure. Half the fun is making your own stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really my whole act is cardboard and tape and staples and <laughs> Velcro. <laughs> who was it said? If it's not Velcro, it's not magic. Uh, <laughs> but yes, it's great fun, yeah. and I love the challenge of uh, I'll conceive of something, then I have to figure out a way to do it. Mm-hmm. And find a way that uh, works for me. And that's great fun. When you said you were performing them when you were 10, I yeah. was about to ask you earlier if you did birthday parties when you yes. were a child. And I assume oh, yes. that that was kind of how you got into it? Yes. I, my theme is so ironic. Given my love of and close to the Asian community now, mm-hmm. I was 10 and my theme was a trip to the Orient. Oh, I didn't know a thing about it. but <laughs> I, I can imagine a 10-year-old. On my recent trip yeah. to the Orient. <laughs> and so I themed everything. Uh-huh. And then, then when I was 16, I self-published a book called trip to, A Trip to the Orient, sold 200 copies, and that's how I bought my first set of tails. Wow. Now, where did you sell that? I mean, was there a magic shop you went yes, to and they sold it? No, no, I sold, I put a little ad in Genie magazine. Did you really? And through word of mouth and um, different newsletters. Uh-huh. One thing led to another. We didn't have the Internet, obviously. Right. But they just moved along. So 200 copies. I found just a few extras. I had a second printing, and I found a few copies. I gave one to Todd Carr, who mm-hmm. loves to collect this memorabilia. And right. So that was followed up with a second book called uh, For That Special Occasion, which was theme, magic-themed according to birthdays, Christmas, Easter, and so mm-hmm. forth. And then a third book called Spooks on Stage, where all the effects were... Um, um, themed in some way with ghosts and the right. ghostly world. So you had a little bit of everything. Your foot was in uh, yeah. a lot of uh, yeah. different pie, so to speak, I guess. Sure, sure. But uh, it was great fun, and I just would, I'd open up the Abbott catalog, and I'd pick effects that I interested me, and then think of a story to put to the effect. And that's okay. what those books and you had a talking act, obviously, back then. Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. I was doing all strictly patter. Okay. Yeah. What do you think then about mm-hmm. uh, storytelling patter versus mm-hmm. descriptive patter? I mean, when I say patter, scripting, I should sure. say. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I think every word should be written out. Mm-hmm. Then you forget it, and you come out spontaneously, extemporaneously, and mm-hmm. speak. But mm-hmm. I think it is, any professional will say the same, that they it's all written out, it's Correct. all scripted. But then there's plenty of room for improvisation, and you deliver it as if it's extemporaneous. Right. But you, you, you really have to work out the lines, uh, work out the patterns so that it's polished. There are lots of ums and ahs and mm-hmm. hesitations, and, and it's, it's going somewhere. And I think also it's important that it appears to be fresh. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, like what I'm doing here at the parlor here this week and uh, performing, all of that has been scripted. I've written it out. I've gone and fine-tuned it a little bit. Sure. But I'm, I'm trying to uh, say it's fresh. One of the ideas, for an example, I haven't done in years, but you remember Terry Seabrook's uh, 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 wallet routine. Yes. Um, burned and restored. And anyhow, uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, not wallet routine. It was his um, uh, cigarette and coat routine. Oh, yes. In which he would say, uh, well, you... Um, You've always wanted a smoking jacket, you know, and then you laugh, and well, pretty soon you'll have a blazer. Mm. I, when I used to say that, I so many times after half my shows, people say, "Would well, you just come up with that?" Because mm. of the spontaneity and you laugh, you of know, course. smack your knee or whatever, and say, "Oh, it, you know." So I think it's important that it seems fresh to the audience because you try to keep it fresh yourself. Well, you also know? it is fresh because the audience is different. Every show, well, that's true. No two shows are the same. Oh, yes, true. Ever. And so that that's part of the freshness. You may know have done it a thousand times, but this is the first time 
they've seen it. Funny you mentioned that. Going back to Scott Hollingsworth, I remember working the Magic Island. One of the things I do on my show, even here, is a rock and shoe. And he said, there is a point where I know that you got a bad audience if they don't laugh whenever that you're surprised or gasp or something whenever you produce that rock in the shoe. If they don't, it's the audience, not you. <laughs> That's very funny. I can hear Scott saying that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who was the Fran- who's the French performer that does a version of that uh, from the shoe? Oh, he vanishes his shoe, and then it reappears. I've lost his name uh, right Piro? now. No, Piro? No. Um, uh, he came out with a book a few years ago. I sh- it's right on the tip of my tongue. It's very, you'd know immediately. Not Gaetan Bloom. No, yes, yeah. Gaet- that's who I'm okay. thinking of. Mm-hmm. Exactly so. Wonderful performer. Oh, yes. Wonderful yeah. work. I had a podcast episode with him uh, some time ago as well, so you can go back in the archives and, and find that. That was that was fascinating. Uh, a conversation I had with him as well. It was at a Genie convention here a while mm-hmm. back. Um, and I wanted to also find out more about, I guess, the Chavez School, because obviously not just that. You had a lot of students who had come through who went on to greatness. Mm. Uh, Levant, I guess, being one of them. Was mm. he one of your students? Or? Not one of mine. I believe he worked with Neil. Okay. I could be wrong, and they'd have to check me on that, but I, very possibly. You were Chavez West, and he was Chavez Midwest, East, I guess. Yeah, Midwest, yeah, more uh, or less. Yeah. That's exactly so. Uh, after Marion, before Marion died, about a year before she passed, she had a dinner with Neil and me. Neil was in California, and that's when she made the proposal mm-hmm. that uh, Neil would continue in Colon, and then I would continue on out here. Mm-hmm. And so I've done that since 78 when Marion died and I tried to, my best to honor their legacy. Do you still teach at all today? I do. Oh, yes. Okay. I have a, How many uh, students do you have currently? Well, uh, typically in a year I'll have a dozen or so okay. spread out over the year. For two years, the, we were locked down because of the pandemic, so mm-hmm. I did everything on Skype. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now it's back to in-person, although I have some Hong Kong students who can't make it over, so we're doing by Skype. It's very effective. That's the thing Uh, I was going to mention as well. Obviously, you opened yourself up to the entire world, so now you know how to do it and got the studio and the lighting and everything, I guess, so that you can actually expand. It works very well. With Mm -hmm. two students, not more than two for Skype. In in the classroom, Mm -hmm. not more than four. They can bounce off of each other. Mm -hmm. But I've got all ages. The youngest student I have right now is 12. The oldest is 81. You're never too young. You're never too old. That's a good you know? point. And there's only they ask me, what's the requirement? Only one desire. Yes, really, that's mm-hmm. what it comes down to. That you desire, you want to, you want to work hard and never lose the fun of right. all this. Now, the person who was 81 was he just wanting or she wanting to yeah. have a hobby or? Yes, be, he's okay. a cardiologist. He's retired, uh-huh. and he wants to. He'd always loved magic, and he wanted to learn the nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. Uh, behind the scenes and learn the sleight of hand. So. Well, I didn't plan to do anything with it necessarily. Not just, necessarily, other yeah. than within the family. I've had, you mentioned any disability, I've had a student. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chad Allen, who's doing very fine work, is legally blind and mm-hmm. does marvelous work. Wow. Um, when we first started working, I put his cane on the floor, and that was the edge of the stage. So we knew he was facing me and not another direction. Interesting. And hands-on, so I put his hands in the right positions, and he could visualize it. And mm-hmm. once he knew the position, he knew what to do. Right. I, uh, without overlooking somebody, were there some particular yeah. students today who are working that uh, you have worked with and trained? Yeah. You know, what I would answer, the way I'd answer that is refer to that um, book of posters of magicians that Norm Nielsen put oh, out. Oh, the Magic Castle? Magic Castle. Yeah. And you'll see page after page after page reference to Chavez mm-hmm. without singling out right. uh, individuals. Mm-hmm. I've done, I continue to do a lot of consulting work also. Mm-hmm. Uh, where if someone has an act, but they would like some feedback, like a different perspective, right. and I'm happy to do that as well. I, um, <clears throat> I don't necessarily encourage students to mention Chavez in their promo work, because to the outside community, it doesn't mean much. And secondly, I don't want them to be stereotyped, or I don't want them a preconceived notion mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the word Chavez. I want you to stand on your own, mm-hmm. and then I'm in the background, so to speak, and and give them as much help as I can. Well, going back to the mail order portion of that that yeah. you were saying, I remember there was a fellow in San Antonio, his name escapes me, he's since passed a long time ago, uh, Dick, maybe it was his first name. Anyhow, the point was, I remember visiting with him, and um, he had sold his course to mm-hmm. somebody. He was a, a veteran uh, and was doing magic on a full-time basis. Um, and uh, but, but I thought there was something at the time, and may still be, in which you're not supposed to resell the course. I mean, if yes. you're supposed to send it back. Is that right? Or? Yes, uh, that's true. They sign an oath. Yeah, uh, That's been the case ever since Marion. 
Uh, there have been a number of instances over the years where I've seen one pop up on eBay. On eBay. And mm-hmm. so I do the same thing that Marion did. I just buy it, take it mm-hmm. off the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, after all, people who enroll in the course are investing not only their money, but all, but even more important, their time. Mm-hmm. And then to have this thing out uh, sold by somebody without that kind of um, commitment, mm-hmm. um, I think, dishonors the legacy. Of do you recall how much that costs? I mean, I know that prices are up a lot. Sure. Today, way when back I then. took it, it was $10 a lesson. Per lesson. I believe that, yeah. Okay. But and how many whole, lessons? 17 lessons? 17 just, lessons, uh-huh. yeah. But that was a lot of money. You yeah, sure was. In high school, I had to work to get those. Cut lots of lawns I cut to make that $10. <laughs> and so it's it's really very reasonable, the home study. It it averages three fifty mm-hmm. now for the complete set of lessons. Uh, the residence is different. It's um, a different price scale on that. But for the – and w- what I do with the home study is they send me in a, a DVD or they send me a link – on video. the internet every second or third lesson, and I critique it just as if we were in the, mm-hmm. the classroom. And then when they finish, they show me the entire finished product, and as far as I'm concerned, it's carte blanche. That is, once we finish the course, they can come back to me any time for additional mm-hmm. feedback. I'm happy to do that. Right. Do you have people who do come out here and study for like a week at a time, go back home, and then yes. next month come back for another week or Yes, usually or? they'll come a minimum of three months, but I've had oh. quite a number of instances where they'll come out for two weeks and then go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fred Casto, who just recently passed. Yeah, Manus, great guy. Yeah, great guy. He yeah. flew down every week. Did he? From no, the he Oakland area. Oakland, I was going to say Sacramento. Yeah. So he'd come down, we meet on Saturday, then he'd fly back, and mm-hmm. we did that for a year and a half. Yeah. I know, speaking of uh, Fred, you did you work for him as the talent chairman for the IBM? You, I know you were for a while, but was he yes. one of the presidents at the time when you were? Uh, yes, I believe so. The person who brought me in was Jeff Hotstetler. Mm-hmm. That was the first year we were in Oakland. Mm-hmm. And then it went through quite a series of presidents also. Yeah, for about 15 years. It was a great pleasure, a great I fun. remember that you were... Like the guy for a long time, <laughs> and then we did the I did the joint again in 2017. Okay, uh, we had the SAM as well. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, I it gives me great pleasure to give work to my fellow magicians. Do you remember a particular show or something? that's kind of like the stars aligned and everybody came together. There was oh, a... so many, uh, okay. so many. The one I remember when we were out in Los Angeles, and I had um, Jay Marshall uh, featured on the show. Um, gosh, we had Rick Thomas. Uh, yeah, there are those where it just everything clicks. You know, I've produced shows. In fact, my current column in the Linking Ring, the Portrait of the Professional, is about producing shows. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I say in that, I give 10 principles that I've tried to live by as a producer, is um, that I feel through every minute of the show long before the curtain rises. I feel through the whole thing. You it's feel through? What do you mean by that? Feeling through. It's a Production of a show is all about feeling and rhythm. Mm-hmm. And I, I know what the feeling is that I want the audience to have every moment along. And I've visualized every, every minute of the show well mm-hmm. before. And I don't leave anything to chance. Uh, when I produced the Academy of Magical Arts show two years in a row, 2016 17, I had 70 pages of production notes and cues oh my for gosh. everything. So Steve Lights Dick and sound would, and everything. Everything. Steve Dick would direct, I would produce. You don't leave anything for, to chance. Chance, right. Uh, and I, my model for that is uh, Fred DeCordova, who was a mm-hmm. sheer first-class professional from the, the Jack show. Benny show all the way up to the Tonight Show, and Peter Brooks, the direct, Shakespearean director, and then uh, Albert, um, uh, Albert, 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 just forgot his last name, but he produced the Victory Variety Shows at Purdue University for many years and kind of took me under his wing. I learned a lot mm-hmm. from watching him. Anyway, that's all in the the, the new column. Need mean to get off onto that, but but I t- I take very seriously the production of shows and t- and try to do my very best and not sacrifice anything, not fa- sacrifice quality. Um, That's an important thing because I know, speaking of magic conventions <clears throat> sometimes and having them produced, it seems like it's just thrown together. I mean, they, they book the talent, but then they don't yeah. really produce a show. It doesn't have a good flow. It's kind of like, well, who wants to go first? You know, Or they yeah. leave it to the MC. How do you want to put this together? Sure. There's a formula, appropriate formula for every show, and the job is to find that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's different from every show, too. Every, every show, so you yeah. really can't say... You, you do start no. with doves and then with illusions. That seems no. to be the traditional way. No, you but. can't. Yeah, <laughs> exactly so. And, and there's a rhythm. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, it all goes back to feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a feeling that you have as a producer and a director. There's a flow. There's a rhythm. 
and you want to convey that to the audience. Mm-hmm. No glitches. Right. No delays. Just seamless. Right. It's seamless. Nice segues. Yeah. Therefore, you bring in a top director, top stage manager mm-hmm. who calls the show. Um, you try to do everything humanly possible to avoid any delays, any curtain delays, any glitches. Mm-hmm. Because um, if that happens, then it destroys the spell, doesn't it, for the That's audience? That's point, yeah. suddenly reminds us. Like you're reading a novel, and if there's a typo, that spoils. You know, that's a very good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that bothers me. If there's something grammatically wrong there or, or misspelled or whatever typo. Yeah, that, the uh, best books I read and I forget I'm reading a book. Mm-hmm. I think the same quality we aim for with shows. We forget we're watching a produced show with all these sets and characters. It just flows and we get immersed in that and we're under the spell. And much were. like, let's say, like a referee in a, in a football mm-hmm. game or, an, you know, who is, of course, doesn't get involved or in the way doesn't of get the players, the but he's close enough to kind of see what's happening. Yeah. I learned, lot, I learned a lot from Hank Morehouse also, mm-hmm. I should mention. Mm-hmm. And of course, Milt Larson, who's produced shows for years. All of those were mm-hmm. real influences. I just watched and studied and listened and learned from them. The It's Magic shows they have now, what month of the year? It used to be around this time, around spring, It's in the it? spring and fall. Okay. Yeah, Dale Heinemann would be the one to talk about that. He's mm-hmm. Milt's right-hand man and, right. and does the directing of the shows. He, In fact, he directed our shows for many years for IBM, mm-hmm. right. st- stage-managed, and knows knows it backwards and forwards, knows how to light a show. Right, right. I had uh, Dale Sawick as... Uh, my stage manager when I was the president of the TAOM huh. in, in Dallas. So Dale Sawick or Dale Hyman? Dale, uh, <laughs> Dale Hyman, sorry. <laughs> you weren't there. <laughs> um, and whenever that uh, uh, people are, are taking the class again after they've completed it, they're, they're encouraged really, I guess, mm-hmm. to go and not necessarily replicate the same show and no. just be a cookie cutter thing, but perhaps they use some, and I mentioned an event earlier, I think is a perfect example which he, he will talk and do some comedy that has some beautiful linking rings and then he'll do some billiard ball uh, manipulation and whatever else and he's just well-rounded. And uh, Yes. Yeah, you make a very good point. If I see a graduate five years later and he's doing the same thing, it's rather disappointing. You almost want to pull him aside and say, hey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, when we were sitting upstairs, I wasn't... Uh, uh, being arrogant at all, but when you said, are you going to do your Chavez act? I said, no, it's the Sawak act. And I meant that very seriously. <laughs> yeah, um, I've apologize. taken Chavez principles, yeah. but it's not a Chavez. It's me. Yes. It's grown over the years, evolved, of course. and continues to evolve. I'm embarrassed. No, no, that. no reason to be embarrassed <laughs> at all. I think it's a very important distinction yes. to make. Good we're point. not mm-hmm. doing, uh, as you say, cookie cutter. Uh-huh. Um, we're, we're aiming for expression of ourselves, and magic is the means of doing that. A uh, hundred people sing the same song. But it's a hundred different songs. That's in right. Different in, with different talents. Right. Yeah. And everyone has a little bit uh, different way of putting their personality in. And again, that's, that's right. what's the important thing is that people would see you, not you presenting, you know, being a tribute act for a yeah, kiss or something. Exactly you know. so. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we have to keep in mind that our audience is laymen. Mm-hmm. Uh, magicians we have, but you know that's a very small percentage of the world's population, and audiences. Most audiences have never seen the classics. Mm-hmm. Most audiences have never seen live magicians. Mm-hmm. It's all fresh. It's not new to you and me. The linking rings, the, the mutilate parasol we've seen for decades, sure. right. but it's brand new. It's fresh. That's correct to the layman. Castle's a beautiful example. Any night, about two thirds of our audience are laymen. Mm-hmm. I guess mm-hmm. it's a real audience, so to speak. Right. And, of course, the magicians are great to work with. They're very appreciative. But it's a different feeling when you're working with a layman who doesn't know what's coming. Mm-hmm. Everything's a surprise and fresh and new and delight to see, we hope. And it needs to be something that is going to be memorable. I learned a few years ago when I was working in the mm-hmm. close-up gallery, and uh, there was a couple from England that were retirees, and they said, this is our first trip to the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. I, he said, as a pensioner, I've been saving my money mm-hmm. to go to America, and the Magic Castle has been a bucket list thing I've always wanted to do. And it made me think, they've come all this way. This is the only show they're going to be seeing, I mean, this one night. They're, spending, they're not going to be here the whole week, this one night that they, their whole life was kind of pointing towards this. When you stop to think about the awesome power that we have, I say power, influence, influence I guess, sure. we, we have, that that makes me even want to do a better, the best show every time because Absolutely. you don't know who's going to be in the audience. And that not only that, them. but they're giving you their most precious commodity, which is their time. time. 
uh, there's a saying in teaching that the worst thief is a bad teacher because the students are giving us their most precious commodity, their time. And mm-hmm. well, I think we could apply that to the audience as well. They've mm-hmm. come oftentimes at great inconvenience, and they're giving us their time. And we better give them, better deliver, and give the best that we can give, not That's hold right. back, whether it's an audience of one or 1,000. Well, we've often heard how if you uh, hear a bad piano player, you're going to listen to another piano player again later, or a singer, the uh, same way. But if you see a bad magician, you're not going to want to see magic mm-hmm. again for mm-hmm. some reason. So, but if you see good magic, you say, I want to see another one. Sure. And then you start to discern and tell the differences among magicians. Yeah, magic should lift, lift the spirit. Uh-huh. There's too much uh, uh, reason for despair in our world. In the world today. Neil sure. taught me a very important lesson. In every audience, there's somebody who's hurting. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons we're on stage or doing close-up is to lift their spirits, even just for a few minutes, mm. give them another alternative, good uh, feeling. It can right. change lives. Now, what about music that you yes. use with your act? How yes. do you select that in order to keep current? Because, I mean, you could sure. still be using music from the <clears throat> 60s or 70s. Sure. But Well, um, it was a long process. Uh, I've, fortunately, I grew up in a, a family of music. My mother was classically trained, so I, and I, so I was hearing classical and big band all my life mm-hmm. and jazz. Mm-hmm. And I gradually found the songs that I wanted, and then I went to Dick Hieronymus in the 70s, and he arranged everything. Mm. And then we went to Gold Star Studios on Sunset, which is no longer there, and he hired for me 21 musicians in the morning when their lips are fresh, 10 o'clock. <laughs> and in two hours, we'd recorded everything, they mixed it. Wow. And I've been using that since. It's fresh. He it does seem it. fresh. And then Steve Sheraton, about five years ago, I was with uh, Ray Pierce in Indonesia, and on a flying back, said, Ray, what do you not like about my music? He says, well, there's a little thin here, something like that. So he put me in touch with, Ray Sher- uh, with Steve Sheraton. We hired six violinists. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hired um, chimes, we hired a harp, some other, and he wrote it into the music. And then we re- recorded those as separate pieces, and then he w- welded, wended it, blended it in with mm-hmm. the music, so it gives a fuller, richer, right. richer sound. So the music brings out of me things. Yes. It surprises me. Mm-hmm. I feel good with the fi- uh, music. When you're selecting music, you do want to start with yourself mm-hmm. and what lifts your spirits, and then make sure it's understandable. Um, you're aiming for 90% of the world, not 10%. Hmm. There's nothing wrong with that 10% of, of a certain style of music today, but if you want a broader market, you want music that's going to be understandable and, and complements your work, doesn't overwhelm. Right. It doesn't get in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, layman will not remember much of what you did a year later. Mm-hmm. Unless it's the Eiffel, uh, Statue, Statue of Liberty, Liberty. or something. <laughs> exactly. But they will remember how you made them feel. And part of that is the, the music. Is it's the music. The, the, and a lot of times music will bring back that mm-hmm. feeling of, oh, I remember seeing a magician doing mm-hmm. this or something. It, it, but you have been very selective in your music. And I'm thinking, for an example, <laughs> the story that Lance Burton had talked about using Vivaldi when he oh, yeah. had, so you may have heard this about, he just didn't know what to use. And he was in a record store and he said, this looks interesting. <laughs> Put it on and said, okay, that's bingo. That's Beautiful. it. That's perfect. <laughs> perfect. Yes. You know it when you hear it. Yeah, I guess that's and true. That music was perfect for him. Rich. And he, he recorded that, if I'm not mistaken, with the Philharmonic in San Diego. Hmm. So it's that rich, full mm-hmm. sound. Now, uh, then the, your music, since you've had it re-recorded and recomposed and everything, yes. I assume that you own that so you can yes. play that on television. That's right. I've already used it. Once you do it, air it once on TV, you play the royalties the first time and then that's it. Oh, you won't for a lifetime. You don't play it like uh, pay them each time after that? No, no. Just one time. Okay. I have it all written out as charts. Mm-hmm. So when I, the first time I did the Merv Griffin show in 78, we were at Caesars Palace and Les Brown played my music. Les Brown and his, Les Brown. N- yeah. and his uh, band, band of renown. Yeah. So I have it all charts. And um, and then I had to sign a, a release and so forth and pay a certain amount to the union, and that was it. Mm-hmm. So now it's once it's been aired once, then you're, you don't have to pay again. I know that a lot of us who will use current music, topical <clears throat> music or whatever, uh, when we're working in banquet halls or whatever, yeah. uh, or even some theaters, we'll give them the music on the flash drive or sure. whatever. Um, and we, for the most part, most magicians have don't pay for the ASCAP or, or anything for that. And yeah. as I understand it, and I don't know if you know much about this and can correct me, but mm-hmm. I had heard that the venue has to pay mm. for that, for any music that they would play. 
Not, uh, but in rare exceptions. Unless it's being broadcast, then, oh. then no. Then they don't. You okay. don't, no. I've never run into that in all the places that I've worked. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, mine's originally recorded and all, but, but nevertheless, they are st- songs in the public domain, which mm-hmm. helps. Mm-hmm. And, but I've never run into that uh, having to pay. And there are some things that run out of... I'm not copyright. I'm trying to say, I guess, uh, that after a period of time, like books, yeah. that you yeah. can republish something after it's uh, after 100 years thing, or whatever. That's right. They're uh, in mm-hmm. the public domain. In the public domain that you could use. And some uh, music. So I'm thinking about, like, again, with some classical music of yes. Vivaldi, for an example. However, if it's recorded by the, the different Philharmonic, right. you can't replay right. that because exactly it's so. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the only only instances where fees are paid that I'm aware of is when it's broadcast. Uh huh. That's okay. understandable. Of course. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, going back to uh, when you were talking about when you were young and some of the tricks that you had learned at the magic shops, did you you, you grew up here in the L.A. area? No, uh, I did not. I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Okay. First, <laughs> and, <laughs> that's where I saw Mr. White. That was okay. my first 14 years. Okay. And then we moved to Indiana, mm-hmm. where I went to junior high, high school, Purdue. And then I moved out here in 69. Okay. So I've seen the best of three parts of the country. I guess you have. Why across from east to west? That's yes. true. So when you were here then as a teenager, did you go and hang out over at Hollywood Magic, I guess, at the time? On or? occasion. Yeah. Okay. I, you didn't work there, I guess. Though. No, I didn't. Okay. I'd go there when I, I was just starting grad school. Mm-hmm. So uh, my time was limited. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I would work the castle about four weeks a year, a week at a time for 125 in the basement, that little yeah, theater. Sure. Do four shows a night, pull our own curtain. Mm-hmm. That was in 70, 71, <laughs> 72. And um, then I'd, yeah, I'd frequent on occasion the Hollywood magic. But it didn't matter just of time. Mm-hmm. The time was a big factor then yeah. for me. Uh, and do you remember any particular trick that uh, was something that you always wanted to buy and you were saving money to finally? Well, as a kid. Oh, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> I had to make everything. I couldn't afford. I, okay. mean, I went to... Um, That's what I wondered if. Yes. Um, I went to Cantor's in Philadelphia. I went to uh, Tannen's in New York. And then there was a, a, sh- a shop in um, Where was Boston. Al- Where was Al Cohen's place? Al Cohen was D.C. D.C., okay. Yeah. Hmm. And there was one in Boston... Um, yeah, it starts with an H. But I would, my parents would go into Boston and I would stay all day in that shop mm-hmm. and just look. The, the, and there are probably other magicians the, hanging out there oh, and you sure. can kind of watch them yeah. and learn from them oh, too. Oh, and I'd, I, I couldn't afford any of that. I'd maybe had a dollar to my name, <laughs> but, but I would see these, the tricks in the showcases and just be enthralled. Yeah, of course. Yeah, these are things that were kind of <clears throat> in your dreams in that you, dreams, you, you, exactly. you wanted to wanted And to then have. I had memorized Abbott's catalog, mm-hmm. and when I could afford something, I'd, I'd order it and couldn't wait for it to arrive. Yeah. And, but they were things, you know, $3, $5, well, $7. You get a lot for that at that time. Speaking of Abbott's, and of course, I know you've worked the convention uh, yeah. there uh, numerous times then as well. That's a fun convention. Very I fun. I mean, it's, it's my uh, favorite. They call it Camp Colon. Well, that was what yeah. I was about to ask you. What are, what's one of your favorite conventions? Is that it? Oh, like that's it? it. I grew up with it. I okay. saw literally all the greats yeah. there. I got to meet them all. Mm-hmm. And those 15 minutes of Neil Foster on stage brought me back every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, marvelous four days. Steve Kelly and I would drive up from Mishawaka every day to our drive, and um, we'd stay until closing. Mm-hmm. And we'd be back there the next morning at eight. You sleep for like two no or three sleep. hours, and yeah, <laughs> just just it really shaped me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I saw so many fine, fine performers over the Duke years. Duke Stern, I guess, was Duke uh, Stern, Carol Fox, mm-hmm. of course, Monk Watson, Dorney Dornfield, uh, Jack Gwynn, and Anne. Mm-hmm. A whole history of magic. Uh, the whole front row. Blackstone Jr., of course. Blackstone Jr. The whole front three rows was a who's who. Now that's all changed. Mm-hmm. Different faces. Different names, but they are different faces, different names. Who are the people who we know now? You know, Nick DeFat. You know, and we were little kids. They were kids at the time, sitting in the audience. Now they're. In the front row, a couple of rows. It is kind of funny how we're kind of moving forward, and so now we're kind of getting to be the people. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Abbott's, uh, I can't say enough for it. Um, On the occasion of their 75th anniversary, I wrote an article in Magic Magazine about it, and I performed there. And just, uh, it was a nostalgic piece, looking over their history and Mm -hmm. appreciating all that Riesel and Greg and the Border family Mm -hmm. have done for Magic. Right. And brought us together and... Really, it's ultimately it's all about friendship, isn't it? Lasting friends that we make. It is. It's uh, exactly right. Like you and I have been friends for yeah. 
decades <laughs> since the dinosaurs. That's <laughs> right, when they roamed the earth. Uh, and they, 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 it is so much fun because it is a, a communal effort that everybody is helping each other and uh, having some fun. And they have all these different parties around town. Speaking of Monk Watson, I remember going to his home with uh, Gene Anderson and some of the other people, sure. you know, way back when. And he used to sponsor some things. And of course, it's such it's a small town with just a one flashing light, you mm. know, it's, uh, they're in town basically. That's part of the magic. How do you fit a thousand people? <laughs> and find housing for all those in a village of 2,100. Right. Um, right. That's part of the magic of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in those early years, I started going to Abbott's in 64. Um, there was no air conditioning. Mm-hmm. In the gym. And, and my first job, first time doing the show was the talent scouts with um, Tom Mullica and and eight other performers. Tim Wright. In the high was, school. Was he Tim Wright yeah. was um, studying with Neil. Mm-hmm. And no air conditioning, so I spent the whole summer preparing for that, working my act every day in a high school gymnasium stage mm-hmm. uh, with no air conditioning, just to get used to that. Man, man. And then eventually, Riesel uh, brought in air conditioning and well, made a difference. That's what I understand, is the money they were earning from the convention yeah. was going to the school to buy their air conditioning. Yeah, I think half of it was put up by the, if I'm not mistaken, by the village, and the other half by Abbott's. So uh-huh. That's how they did it, yeah. and brought in the... Air conditioning. That made a big difference, I'm sure. Big difference, yeah. I remember Senator Crandall complaining that everything stuck to his body. <laughs> Cards and silks. and He'd have a heck of a time in his performances. As we uh, start to wrap up over here, the um, I appreciate the time that we've oh, had here together. It's fun reminiscing. <laughs> I don't get to do this every day. <laughs> I can't believe it's gone so quickly. Uh, the name of my podcast is called The Magic Word Podcast. Yeah. So as we close, I'd like for you to share with us what it is that's important in your life, what's a, what's your phrase or, yeah, well, uh, it starts with my family, mm-hmm. uh, be beyond everything. And my parents uh, created an environment that was encouraging and supportive. Uh, if I showed an interest, they supported it. Mm-hmm. Never once did my. Um, the what's the joke? Uh, what do you want to do when you grow up? Oh, I want to be a magician. Well, you can't do both. And right. None of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just supported it. So it, it starts with my family, my own family that I was raised in, uh, with my mom and dad, and my um, who are now gone, and my brother, and then my own family with my son Ryan, who's working in Orlando, and my wife. Uh, so it starts there, mm-hmm. really. That's the, what. How is home defined as a place where we can go back to, and there's someone there waiting for us. Mm. At home, so then beyond that, just the creative life. Um, I've, I've, I'm not. I don't sing. Mm. I'm not a particularly good dancer. Don't ask me to tell jokes. But I, I love performing, mm-hmm. and magic has given me the vehicle for mm-hmm. performing, expressing myself. Um, and I love any aspect of creativity, whether it's writing, performing, teaching, gives mm-hmm. me enormous pleasure. I love to travel, and then my own personal values, my own personal faith is at the core of my life, and that's essential as well. Is you know we're here for a very short time, mm-hmm. a few decades, and everything's on loan. We don't keep anything. So while we're here, what are we going to do with our time? Well, we're going to serve others. Einstein said the purpose of life is to serve others. So whatever talents or gifts we have, uh, to whom much is given, much is expected, do everything we can, make the best use of our time to uh, serve others. I love that. Make the best use of your time to serve others. Mm. Yeah. And and you certainly have. I mean, you have lived a life of service to others by teaching people and giving us the, the many magicians that we mm. enjoy watching today everywhere. It's a great pleasure. Thank you and very much. And privilege, too. <laughs> it is a privilege, yeah. you know, to, to, to have that opportunity to yeah. share with someone, for them to come and ask you, you know, yes. to do that. And, yes, exactly And, um, so. yeah, we have a great responsibility there then, too. And privilege to be with you. Dale, thank you. I was about to say the very same thing. We could have <laughs> said that together. Thank yeah. you very much. Good talking with you. Yep, my pleasure. And so for the Magic Word Podcast, that was Dale Sawick. This is Scotty Out. Thank you very much, Dale, for joining me this week on the Magic Word Podcast. It was a delight catching up with you and having a really quality conversation with a, a friend whom I respect. And I, again, thank you for your time and your words and your friendship. It was it was great. I hope the rest of the listeners uh, enjoyed this as much as I enjoyed having a chance to chat with you. 
Well, next week we're going to be off again to another convention, so there will not be an episode released uh, as usual at the usual time on Thursday mornings, or depending upon what time zone you're in, but 9 a.m. Central Standard Time in the U.S. I believe that's GMT minus 5 or 6, somewhere around there. <laughs> Anyhow, there won't be one uh, next week because I'll be attending another convention, and I'm not certain even if I'm going to be able to post that one or not because it's uh, something that is kind of an underground convention and the uh, the organizer, Lance Pierce, uh, doesn't want uh, more people outside of a certain group to, uh, to know about that, so he doesn't need to have more people attend because it is such a small group. But uh, if I can report from that, I will be. So it'll be kind of a, an inside deal if uh, we get to report that. I'm not sure either if I'm going to report on both days, that is, having two separate episodes or whether I'm going to combine both into just one episode for days one and two uh, because it'll be taking place on Friday and Saturday. And again, typically I release a podcast on Thursday. So there may be a podcast released late Friday and another one on Saturday, or perhaps both may be late Saturday. So again, just hopefully you subscribe to the Magic Word podcast and you will be alerted whenever one uh, becomes live and is has been released. So you can subscribe however, whichever kind of podcast platform platform you listen to, whether it's Spotify or iHeartRadio or iTunes or wherever. I think we're every place. If there is some place where you download podcasts and uh, I'm not on there yet, let me know and I'll see if I can get uh, us on there as well. I also want to remind you to please subscribe to our pod letter and the pod letter will let you know from week to week what's happening. And uh, we're going to be having also some contests coming up uh, very soon. And I want to thank, I'll tell you in advance, Michael Breger, who is going to be giving us some a couple of uh, fantastic uh, prizes to award so i want to thank him in advance so that's coming soon so until next week stay well get booked and remember to make the best use of your time to serve others this is scotty out Music.